once you read and read and read, if you're trying to build a career in investing, you need to be able to then write a report that convinces you to make your decision one way or another. And then mm. somebody else needs to be able to stress test and criticize it. And I think what I see in the market is a lot of oh, EPS gained and EPS missed and uh, estimates met and estimate gained. That doesn't make anyone any money. And I guess it does make money for those traders that have 100 positions of 1% each. But as an investor, it doesn't make anyone any money. So if all you're trying to do is forecast next year's EPS or a free cash flow valuation and you think you're going to be out of the market, you're not going to be out of the market. This is the How to Trade Stocks Options Podcast, brought to you by 10MinuteStockTrader.com, where we cover finance, stocks, options, entrepreneurship, education, and money. And here's your host, voted one of the top 100 people in finance, Christopher Ewell. Are you ready to finally learn how the market really works? Well, now's your chance. I have a free book for you over at secretinvestingbook.com. And this outlines 13 of the biggest secrets that Wall Street doesn't want you to know, like how to get a positively unfair advantage in the stock market. This is everything you're going to need all in one place. And the way to get this is by going to secretinvestingbook.com. Now, this book is free. It is free for you. I paid for the book. I just need you to help me out by covering the shipping from our office to your house. So go to Secret Investing Book right now, get your free copy today, and I'll ship this out right away and you can get the positively unfair advantage in the stock market by reading these 13 secrets that Wall Street does not want you to know. So get your free book over at secretinvestingbook.com today. The How to Trade Stock Assumptions podcast is now exclusively on sharevision.com, the first dedicated streaming platform for the world of finance. And that's where you can find us every single week over at sharevision.com. Just head to sharevision.com to learn more and type in 10 minute stock trader in the search bar. Come like and subscribe. I can't wait to see you over there at sharevision.com, the first dedicated streaming platform for the world of finance. Hey there, traders. Welcome back to today's How to Trade Stocks Options podcast. Today, we have a super special guest online, Neeraj Manga. Now, Neeraj comes from Antia Investments, Inc. in Toronto, and he has a long history in the financial markets. And I'm, I'm really excited to kind of pick his brain, talk to him, and, and definitely learn from, from his experience out there. That That's one of my greatest pleasures with the podcast is being able to share case, showcase and learn from these amazing guests. So Neeraj, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So, so Neeraj, give us uh, give us some background. Where did uh, where did you first get interested in the the financial markets? That was when I was a young teenager in India, growing up in New Delhi. I was always interested in the world of business and economics. And when I was around uh, grade eleven or grade twelve, there was a gentleman by the name of Harshad Mehta who was known as India's big bull. And he created a frenzy around stocks and investing. And that's how I caught the fire. Ultimately, he was caught in a scam in terms of routing money from banks into stocks and like a shell game. Uh, and so the whole thing collapsed around him and it hurt the Indian capital markets for a few years. But by then I was already hooked onto the world of investing. Oh, I have never heard of this story. Can you tell me more about India's big bull? Like, obviously, so he captured your attention. Yeah, go ahead. Right. His, he, was called, he was called Harshad Mehta, a gentleman in Mumbai. 
and he was a broker, a stock broker, and his company was called Grow More Investments. And he was called India's Big Bull, and he took uh, liking to many stocks, and especially a stock called Associated Cement Companies, which apparently now is part of Hold, uh, Holdenburg Cement from uh, uh, Europe. And it was India's largest cement producer at the time. And he started talking about replacement cost uh, of building these plants, getting permits, et cetera. And if I recall correctly, now you have to forgive me, say almost 35 years ago, the stock touched 10,000 Indian rupees. And then ultimately all of it collapsed too. But that's what got the Indian market and Indian investors and Indian community excited about the stock market for the first time ever. Was the associated cement that trade? Associated Cement Companies, yes. So what was it, it about? To, Go ahead. It belongs to the House of Tata's, which is one of India's most respected business groups. And it was their flagship cement business. Uh, and that's one of the stocks he really took a fancy to. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did he come across your radar, right? If he's interested in investing in cement and talking about it, what was that, what was that initial spark that was like, oh, I like what he's talking about here. Maybe I should learn more. Well, I just love reading newspapers and magazines. And then suddenly I saw in newspapers, there was a headline every day in the business pages, the stock market is going up, the stock market is going up. This person made that much money. Some other person made millions, some other person made millions. And so I just got intrigued and interested. And I started looking at these stock pages and these stock pages had all these companies with numbers in front of them. And that excited me a lot. And I was always very interested in economics. And so as I'm looking at these numbers, I have in knack of remembering numbers and remembering data. And then I started making sense and making bridges. And I just got really excited and interested into it. Were you excited in trading it and profiting from it? Or were you excited about just the uh, the excitement of the market, right? Those are kind of two different things. I was not excited about trading. I was excited about the challenge of seeing something that someone else does not see. Mm and profiting from that over the medium to longer term. And I was excited about the fact that there are, and around the same time, the hedge fund industry was taking off in the United States and Western Europe. And you started seeing these stories in magazines where the hedge fund managers were making a lot of money by making astute bets. And I think George Soros, he broke the pound. That story also emanated around the same time when Britain didn't join the EU mechanism about the pound, the whole Soros story. And that excited me. And that's how I got all hooked into it. But I was not trading to make money. That, that was the least of my concerns. Would you say that the, the challenge of it excited you? Of course. Yeah. It's all about the challenge. Yeah. It's all about being able to see what somebody else doesn't see. And then being able to prove that you're right. I love that. So, so let's say you know that this was around the time you're in 11 or 12th grade. What happened next? Did you go to school for finance or, or what happened next? I got an undergraduate degree in economics. I got a master's degree in finance in India. And I came over to Canada to do my MBA. Uh, I started in uh, consulting. Uh, but my first love was still investing. And in 2001, uh, the entire North American market broke down in the tech crush and the tech bust. And I was just first year into my strategy consulting job and the entire organization went down from 150 to maybe 20 people, let go of 130 people. 
And I said, well, this is the time to go back to my first love. It's interesting. I used to work on a few business cases at the consulting company. And when markets would come up, I would have some ideas and some views. And a couple of my friends started saying to me that you shouldn't be a consultant. You should actually be a money manager. And so once that whole thing crashed, I said, well, maybe I should go be a money manager. I've always loved it anyway. I bet that that was a different world because going from a consultant where you're kind of, you're, you're divorced in the way that it's not your assets, it's not your risk on the line, but you're kind of giving your professional advice versus the other end of the spectrum being a money manager where you're actually taking the risk. You're actually um, not, not giving the advice, but putting things into practice. That was probably a pretty big shift for you, would you say? It was and it wasn't. So the way I started my career in capital markets in North America is by joining and working for an independent investment research startup. So this organization called Veritas Investment Research, it was founded by Michael Palmer and the current president is Anthony Shilipori and the two of them were there and I was the first employee. And when I joined them, we were purely a research house. And around that time, the Elliott Spitzer reforms on Wall Street also took place, which had become a problem after the WorldCom crisis and after the AT&T crisis, et cetera. Uh, so when we were writing independent research, in a way, we were consultants. We had no trading. We had no commissions. We were not managing money. All we were selling was the depth and ingenuity of our ideas to clients who may or may not be receptive. And that's how I started the business. So you were selling ideas as the Which money is similar manager? to being a consultant. Okay. Okay. So, so you weren't actually the custodian of the funds at that time. No, we were okay. just a pure research house. And gotcha. so for the first 14 years, as we built Veritas Investment Research into Canada's most uh, famous, biggest, and best well-known independent equity research organization, this all we did was provide independent advice on stocks, Global, North American, that's what we did mm -hmm. before I left to set up a money management business in 2014. So you were there from 2001 to 2014? That's right. I bet you saw a lot of stuff happen during that time, didn't you? Uh, I learned a lot and we created a lot of value for ourselves and our clients. And I, yes, I saw a lot. Market cycles, aggressive accounting, uh, Wonderful companies gone awry because management's eye was not on the ball. I saw the rise of Apple, bust of BlackBerry, bust of Nortel, the bust of Valiant. I predicted some of them. I helped create some of those reports. I saw the multiple gyrations at Nortel networks. I saw all the stuff I mentioned, WorldCom, the blow up of uh, Anderson. I saw AIG blowing up, the financial crisis. Beer Stearns, Lehman, and then the, there's a sector called a trust sector, the boom of that, the commodity boom, commodity bust. I've seen it all. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, a lot happened um, between 2001 and, and 2014. There were like two full cycles, you know, two full boom and bust cycles during that time. That's right. What, what would you say is one of the most interesting stories that you, that you lived through during that time? Well, there are interesting stories at multiple fronts. Some of them involve the research that I wrote and how it came about. 
And some of that involves some bad or good investments you made in the market and how they worked out. I think from a personal learning standpoint, one of the lessons I learned is that it doesn't matter how much disclosure there is. There can always be more. And liquidity is all that matters. Mm. Nothing else matters. The 2008-2009 financial crisis taught me one thing for life. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're not liquid, you bust. So AIG went bust because it went, it had no liquidity. They had all these off-balance sheet uh, counterparty swaps that were tied to their either stock price or credit rating. And each time either the stock price or the credit rating went down, they had to post more collateral, more collateral. So they had this, they made a presentation. I still remember at the height of the financial crisis, which was like a hundred slide deck presentation to the world telling how great they were in and what kind of a situation they were in. But they never said a single line statement there saying that if our credit rating went down a notch, how much additional collateral we'll need to post. And so nobody knew that was coming because they never disclosed that. And as soon as they had a downgrade in the credit rating, collateral calls started coming in. And each time they had to post more collateral, the credit rating went down further and they had to post more collateral until the US government had to step in to save them. Mm. So I personally lost a lot of money in that stock. So that was the biggest lesson as an investor. Make sure your positions are diversified. Make sure they are not big enough that if one of them goes bust because you are too tied to it and you're too much in love with it, that you will not go bust. Make sure that there is never too much margin in your portfolio. And I've never had margin in my portfolios. And make sure you understand the liquidity. That's really, really, really sound advice. In fact, I, I literally today, this morning was given a webinar and on that webinar, um, I'm trying to find the slide here because I want to I want to tell it to you. Um, hang on, hang on. Sorry, it was it was a quote from Larry Height. Uh, I'll share my screen. It was a quote from Larry Height, one of the original market wizards, and he says, "If you don't diversify, control your risk and go with the trend." Or if you diversify, control your risk and go with the trend. It has to work. And that reminded me of a lot of what you were just saying, right? Diversifying your li- your risk. Um, not letting uh, too much work against you. He talks about letting 1% of his account work in any one trade. And uh, that just, I don't know, something about what you were just describing reminded me a lot of uh, of Larry Hyde so, right there. So I'm not a trader. And in my view, I guess people who trade on a daily basis because they have to take uh, cognizance of if it's 1% of a trade, they have 100 securities in their portfolio or 100 different assets in their portfolio uh, and they can't keep track of all of them. So they are traders. They think differently and act differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I never have more than uh, the way I manage money in my portfolios. It's a core satellite where core, which is approximately 50% is an asset allocation to various market indices to capture market return in the core at the least possible cost. And the satellite is at most between eight to 10 stocks, which I believe are positioned asymmetrically in the marketplace to give the excess returns. So I never, in a way, I only have to worry about eight things. Mm-hmm. I never have a 1% position. My positions are between four to 6% in general, because I, the core allocation algorithm, I don't consider that a position because you can change it a little in terms of the weight from 20 to 25% for NASDAQ versus S&P or Canada versus US, but you're not going to really sell out any of those and you're not trading that. So I don't even think much about my core. 
Mm-hmm. I only pay attention to the satellite that I have, which is maybe eight securities, and and that's about it. Mm-hmm. But I know them well, and I understand them, and I pay a lot of focus on accounting, on governance, on disclosures, on balance sheet strength, and then comes the asymmetrical part where you figure out if the narrative in the marketplace is too positive or too negative, given where I think the prospects may or may not be. So, how would you determine? Like, let's say you got into uh, a position and that position just didn't work, right? Obviously, you you did all your research, you found all the disclosures, <clears throat> but the price just wasn't recognizing that, right? Do you have a, a an exit strategy or is this something you feel that as a long-term investor, I'm in it forever? So because the stocks that I own I'm not trading them. And because the stocks that I own, I know don't really have a balance sheet risk. They're all investment grade, free cash flow positive companies. They are mostly, I only invest large cap, mega cap generally, or something that's going to become a mega cap. And we can discuss that too. And I know they are, they may underperform. They may go down five, 10, 20%. They're not going to blow up. It's not that I'm buying a Peloton at $80 and it's going to end up at five. Mm-hmm. Right, or I'm buying Beyond Meat at $180 and it's going to end up at 30s. I don't do that. Right? So if I buy something, I know even if I it lags the market, there's a reason I own it. For instance, I own Bristol Myers for four and a half, five years. Mm-hmm. It has lagged the market, but I'm not worried because I do get a dividend yield on it. It's three, four percent of the portfolio, maybe five percent. I don't know exactly where it is, but every time the market falls, it holds my portfolio up. And the markets have been so volatile and I have positioned it such since last September, I can see what's coming, what's coming. And I think the next six months are going to even be very, very difficult for the market. Every time the market's going down, 5% of my portfolio is actually going up. So the way I select securities in my portfolio is some of them are there just to maintain steadiness and dampen the volatility of the portfolio. Some of them are actually to generate returns in excess of the market. So out of eight securities, three may be there to dampen portfolio returns, which will be, for instance, AbbVie, Bristol-Myers. And there'll be two or three, which would actually, I think, have an asymmetrical position, which will going to be giving me 5 to 10% alpha on an analyzed basis. And the other, perhaps, if not, will do at least as well as the market. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. The, and since the core of the portfolio is already the market, it's very unlikely that I'm going to be ever behind the market. Yeah, and, and I like hearing your different perspective on this, right? Because we, we've had people from all different walks of life on here, right? So it's, it's really refreshing, in my opinion, to be able to get a longer term perspective on that. So one of the things that kind of captured my attention uh, researching you was the work that you did and around and research you did on Kingfisher. Um, could you could you give us some uh, some of the background on this? And and honestly, I don't know how many people in our audience would know what Kingfisher is. I only know Kingfisher from watching Formula One races when uh, they used to be a big sponsor on yeah. the uh, the Force India team, and then um, they weren't. <laughs> I, and I knew a lot had happened through there, so I'm really very interested to hear what you saw and went through and, and watched as all this played out. So Kingfisher Airlines used to be an organization in India that was an airline. 
but owned by a, a businessman, gentleman by the name of Vijay Malia, who also owned a large liquor empire. And he used to sell beer in the name of Kingfisher as well. Now, I understand if I recall correctly, I don't live in India anymore, but there's some restriction in terms of how you can advertise alcohol in India. So instead of saying buy Kingfisher beer at the time, perhaps he just got Kingfisher's name on the Formula One team and everybody watches Formula and people are thinking it's Kingfisher Airlines, but mm -hmm. also advertising for beer. That's the story behind it. But in terms of Kingfisher Airline itself, it is one of the least amount of time I've ever spent on doing any work, but it has also become one of the most famous pieces of work I've ever done. And Netflix made a documentary called Bad Boy Billionaires in which the first episode is all dedicated and devoted to Kingfisher Airlines and how that organization blew up. And that's based on, significantly based on my research. Although I only have a cameo in it, cameo in it. So I was traveling from Mumbai to Delhi, perhaps in 2011. And when I went uh, on that trip, which was a two hour or one hour, 40 minutes trip, I thought that the airline service was great. Uh, the experience was awesome. And I thought that this must be really expensive. And I know airlines are a marginal cost business. I was surprised that somebody wanted to run a full service airline in such short distances with such aircraft and how are they ever going to make money? So once my trip was done, I came back to Canada and I started, started reading the annual report and I didn't like it a wee bit. And the company was deeply indebted. They were behind payments to their suppliers. They weren't paying taxes to the exchequer. Uh, they had, uh, perhaps they may or may not have been investing fully in uh, maintaining the aircraft, which is a requirement from the lessors and all those things. There's so many things. And I wrote a very short report. Basically, it was like eight pages or 10 pages highlighting that most likely it's a dead man flying. Uh, I, I actually call it a pie in the sky. Uh, and then all hell broke loose in India because this process in India was, or maybe still is, that people do not want to come forward and say things the way they are because there's lots of blowback from various authorities. And perhaps, uh, so when my report was published, it just, everybody had some independent third party saying what was wrong with the airline. And the management came out and they decided to uh, kind of portray us uh, in uh, poor light. Nonetheless, within eight months, as I anticipated and as I predicted, the airline went belly up. And unfortunately, because the liquor empire of Mr. Malia had guaranteed the debt of airline, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, all of that was eaten up by the airline. So that's the Kingfisher Airlines story. So you said all, all hell broke loose in India. Was there an economic event that happened? What, what do you mean by that? Many things happened. So one of the things I, when I wrote the Kingfisher Airlines report, I just looked at the exposure of the Indian financial system to the airline. And I was not very happy with the way the banks had lent money to the airline. And I suggested in my report that perhaps there's a problem with the Indian banking system. And I believe three weeks after my report was published, Moody's actually came out and downgraded the standalone credit rating of the State Bank of India, which is India's largest public sector bank. Um, and then because banks had such exposure and nobody had actually put pen to paper to explain everything that was going on within the airline, Many, many questions start, were being asked by individuals and bankers, et cetera, that how are we going to get prepaid in terms of these loans that are outstanding? 
and significant debate ensued in India. And ultimately, I think uh, it didn't go very well for Mr. Malia. Uh, and the Indian government launched an investigation into the airline, the loans, etc. Then Mr. Malia left India and he lives in the UK now. And I don't know why all of that is going on because I believe Mr. Malia has said to the government that uh, I will repay all the loans which were guaranteed by my organization. But I guess there are other things that I do not know about that are also part of the whole process. So from what I'm understanding, the biggest question from the banks and from the whole system breakdown here was how are we going to repay the loans? Am I, am I reading that right? Uh, that's right. Don't you think they would have asked that ahead of time? <laughs> Before you know, you're right. Again, the government of India has, inve- has been investigating and they've been trying to fight a case in the UK court. So I don't want to comment on any of those things. Uh, if I was the banker, I wouldn't have let them a single dollar. Uh, and actually the judge in UK who appointed on the case did call the integrity and the risk management processes of Indian state-owned financial institutions into question. And he was categorically uh, unhappy about the banks themselves beyond the fact that Mr. Malia was involved in the whole thing. And Indian banks didn't come out looking very good in that uh, judgment. Moreover, it's very evident that every two to three years, the Indian government, the Ministry of Finance has to recapitalize the Indian banks on one pretext or the another, the public sector-owned state, state-owned banks, which suggests that those banks have not been playing, they have been playing to the gallery, perhaps they're not playing to the shareholders or their public tax funds that have been entrusted to them. Hmm. Because every six months, you hear a story from India that somebody is absconded with a billion dollars from one of those Indian banks. I don't know, it's like an open door. Huh. So I just found that to be a really, really interesting story. I, I appreciate you uh, going into that for us. But let me ask you another question related to this. How many other Netflix shows are you on? Uh, not many. <laughs> not many. Not many. No, that's pretty cool. And going, and going back to the Indian story, you know, one of those banks, Industrial Development Bank of India, now it's been 11 years, so I, I don't remember exactly, but I believe it was the Industrial Development Bank of India, and they were a big exposure, and I highlighted that their book equity compared to the loan they have outstanding to the single entity is so disproportionate to the risk-taking capacity of the bank that what is going to happen, and more, if I, I think that was the bank that Life Insurance Corporation ultimately ended up buying in order to... Pr- prevented from going insolvent or something. I don't remember correctly, but that's happened, I think. Many Mm. banks have been merged and many banks have been sold to other banks. Yeah. So how is, what's going on in the world of Antia investments? And you mentioned earlier that that means infinite. I love that idea, infinite investments. Because really in in theory, any any investment could be infinite given a long enough time range. Tell me what y'all do over there. What's uh, what is a normal day, and what is what, what do y'all go through over there? So Antya is a Sanskrit word, which kind of is a play on anant and infinite. So anant is infinite. Antya means um, a number one followed by sixteen zeros. So basically, it's infinite. And the reason I 
latched into that name because I believe there are an infinite ways to lose money in the stock market. <laughs> that and is the world not what I investing. expected you to say. <laughs> infinite ways to lose money. money. In the investing world of investing, right? You can lose money through leverage. You can lose money in options and you can lose money in derivatives and you can lose money in commodities and you can lose money in whatever you feel like losing money in. And, but so we try to distill this world of infinite options to make or lose money to a select few. And that's why I said there's a core where you try to capture the market return at the least possible cost. And there's a satellite which focuses on ESG has become the norm now, right? The whole world talks about ESG. So, but at the end of the day, E, which is the environment and social, leaving that aside, the ES, G has always been a pillar on which my entire investing life has been built, mm -hmm. which is the governance. And the governance comes from the financials. So we do a lot of research in terms of understanding the financials. The governance comes from the integrity of the management, which means when they come on conference calls and the way they answer questions, are they being forthright? Are they being deceptive? Do their words match? So in order, before we try to make an investment, we read five years of annual reports or 10Ks back to back to compare, are they changing disclosures? Are these disclosures consistent and comparable over that period of time? And if they do change and what are the reasons and how they change and how it impacts financial statements. So G has always been a very big part of uh, uh, my investing philosophy and my work. And that's what we do at Antia. And we'll try to look for asymmetrical investment opportunities. Like I said before, an example, if you want one I could give you is Tesla. Tesla was uh, the world's most hated stock four years ago, five years ago. I don't remember the exact time, maybe 2017, 2018. Uh, every short seller and their uncle was on CNBC and BNN saying this company was going to go bankrupt. It was approximately a $50 billion market cap at the time. And every media outlet was spewing fire either at Mr. Musk personally or at Tesla or the quality of their car. And then uh, that was one of my biggest positions in the portfolio. And I continued writing research for two years saying the market underestimates the potential of Tesla and this company is not going bankrupt. And all this talk you hear on TV is about $2 billion of debt. The company has a $50 billion market cap. If all they wanted to do was sell maybe 10 million shares, they could pay half this debt, it'll be gone. It was only a 250 or $300 stock at the time. It was going up and down a lot around in those days. And uh, I published, uh, and my entire research in the form of a compendium on Amazon, because I started, I dropped coverage around 12 months ago because I thought the story had run its cause. And so we made nine times of our clients' money on that single position over a period of, I think, 26 months or 32 months. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was an asymmetrical situation where people did not understand exactly what was underway. Everyone was taken up by rhetoric and everyone was taken by the noise that surrounded the company, uh, but not by the product or what was being delivered itself. And, and so that's what we do. So that's why we don't have too many stocks because we don't have the bandwidth to actually look at that many stocks and keep track of it. And mm -hmm. then the other thing is you've got to hold on to your nerve. Right? Now, why would Tesla go bankrupt? I never understood that uh, argument ever because 
the company was maybe burning 500 million to 700 million dollars of cash flow it had only 2 billion dollars of debt it had a market cap of 50 billion dollars it was the only company of its kind in electric cars and i got into the stock after i started watching some of those youtube videos where tesla model s could actually be drag race cars and so there has to be something to it and you can't i can't my bmw cannot drag race and beat someone Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I said, "This is such a funny car, and it can beat drag racers that are on their track. There must be something to it." And so that's how I got into the stock after reading the financial statements. And ultimately, once I think the stock hit twenty seven hundred, twenty eight hundred dollars, which was pre split, because then they split and they are up again to now seven hundred dollars. I think it was seven for one, if I recall. So adjusted for the split, it's four thousand nine hundred dollars. I think we sold out around three thousand two hundred dollars or something out of the stock. We haven't owned it since, and uh, but that was an asymmetrical situation. So I published my research in the form of a compendium on Amazon just to show that people they can go and read the research if they want. Very cool. You know, it's interesting you bring up the the Tesla drag races. I've watched a lot of those Tesla drag races too, and you know what their uh, their new plaid? Um, it is so fast. sub 9 seconds on some tracks that um they are not NHRA legal. Uh they need a roll cage and a parachute to drive okay. on a car you can drive through the neighborhood. And right. uh isn't that the most ridiculous thing, right? Yeah. It is. And so again, uh, but I guess that story is already known. The whole world loves it and some people hate it now, but now it's a 800 billion dollar company 900 yeah. billion dollar company so and i don't think they're going anywhere i i think uh i think they're they're setting the new standard right this is the new henry ford that we're looking at here in my opinion yeah and it may be but i think now if from 900 to 1.8 trillion it goes it doubles in value but there's so many other stocks that can double in value so from yeah. an investment standpoint is it the same investment it was 4 years ago it is not but as a company will it be around will it be successful strong and stable perhaps right well very cool well nirash what What would you feel would be a good takeaway for somebody listening to the podcast who um number 1 would like to get into your world, learn more about you and what you do and then maybe some sort of uh you know investing takeaway that they could take with them. So I'll repeat something that Warren Buffett has said a lot. He reads a lot. I read a lot. If you hate reading, you can't win this business. No, I'm going to interrupt you for 2 seconds here. One of my goals for 2021 was to read 100 books. I read 110, and for this year, it's to also read another 100 books. And I'm at, I think I'm at 19 right now. I keep a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Congratulations. Yeah. I don't think I've ever read 100 books in a year. And when I say read, I am yeah, you should read books, of course. Uh, but I read a lot of newspapers, a lot of magazines, a lot of annual reports every day. Read one annual reports, one 10k form, and then just. read and read and read and read and read and i think that what happens is that now i have done it for 25 years or 30 years once i read i remember things and i don't need to actually create a thesis anymore because i generally don't like to publish a lot anymore for other people but once you read and read and read if you're trying to build a career in investing you need to be able to then write a report that convinces you to make your decision one way or another and then mm-hmm. somebody else needs to be able to stress test and criticize it and i think what i see in the market is a lot of oh, eps gained and eps missed and uh, estimates met and estimate gain that doesn't make anyone any money and i guess it does make money for those traders that have 100 positions of 1% each 
But as an investor, it doesn't make anyone any money. So if all you're trying to do is forecast next year's EPS or a free cash flow valuation, and you think you're going to be out of the market, you're not going to be out of the market. Very good. Well, Neeraj, this has been really, really excellent. Where can people learn more about you? Obviously, they can go on Netflix and catch you on The Bad Boy Billionaires, but where else could they learn more about you? Well, to the extent they want to see some of my old research, it is on my website, www.antea.ca. And beyond that, sometimes I publish free research. They can subscribe to the email, which is on the website. And that's about it. I haven't written a book yet. So they can't go read any of the books I've published. And my research is only available to institutional money managers right now. So. Well, very cool. I, I really appreciate it, Neeraj. This has been a, a great change of pace for us, you know, we, being able to, to learn a totally different style. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to go through all that with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yul. Thank you for time. You're welcome. And thank you guys for tuning in to today's How to Trade Stocks Options podcast. Make sure you like, subscribe, and enable notifications. That way you never miss any of the tools, tips, and tricks we upload every single week to help you trade faster and trade smarter. And I'll see you on the next episode. Hey, don't forget, before you head out, head to secretinvestingbook.com right now to get your free copy of The Secret Investing Book. This is how to finally get a positively unfair advantage in the stock market. And it has 13 of the secrets that Wall Street does not want you to know. And I want to send this to you for free today. Just help me by covering shipping. And the way you can do that is by going to secretinvestingbook.com. That's secretinvestingbook.com. And I'll ship this out for you right away. Thanks so much. I'll see you there.